From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with Winston-Salem Mayor Alan Joins. And after that, writer Scott Woods joins me for a dispassion discussion about racism. What is it? And perhaps more importantly, what it isn't. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Three years ago, I made the move to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, having migrated from the San Francisco Bay Area. To say I love it here would be a severe understatement. And I can think of no better way to highlight my adopted home than to be joined quarterly by Winston-Salem Mayor Alan Joins. The five-term mayor has agreed uh, to appear on the public morality quarterly and in future broadcasts, we will encourage listeners to offer questions that we will read on the air. Mayor Joins, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thank you so much. It's good to be back with you and uh, your listeners here. Well, I, I want to first begin uh, by congratulating you on your re-election. Thank you. I, I believe this is your sixth term, is that correct? Uh, actually, fifth term. Fifth term, I'm sorry. Yeah. Fifth uh -huh. term. Um, I'm excited about this. Uh, um, although you've been on the public rally before, this is our inaugural broadcast. That we're pleased that that you've agreed to appear quarterly on the public rally to to discuss the city of Winston, my official adopted home. Right. And we want to get the perspective of the mayor, and 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 so our listeners can see a little bit about uh, get some of your insight of what goes on day to day in that office. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. I think it's it's, it's a great uh, program. Um, gives me an opportunity to, to share some things that we're trying to do but and probably generate some feedback. Uh, maybe, you know, you'll you'll be able to ask some questions that, that uh, listeners are, have on their mind as well. Absolutely. Um, then let's begin um, with you um, articulating the changes you've seen since you first took office. Winston-Salem before, Winston-Salem after. However you want to define that, sir. Yeah, certainly we've gone through a metamorphosis. There's no question. When I when I uh, assumed office in 2001, um, the city was, I would say, in somewhat of a downward spiral. Uh, you know, where our traditional industries, manufacturing, um, uh, textiles, furniture, and tobacco, were all in states of decline. Uh, I felt like too that we were not really on. Didn't have a really good. Um, plan for where we wanted to try to take the, the city and the community. And so I think in the past um, uh, 15 years, and I'm not saying it's me all totally, I've uh, had a lot of people working on this, but I think we've gotten the ship uh, righted. We've got a good uh, direction that we're trying to take it. We've seen our unemployment rate drop down to about 4.6 percent, you know, anything below 5, people think generally uh, uh, full employment, uh, seen good growth in the uh, in, in, uh, our industrial and business sectors, and more importantly, I think we have a common vision of where we're hoping the city will go. So if you were to give your abbreviated state of the city address yeah. for our listeners, you would say? I, I would say that um, it's, it's a positive one, that our unemployment rate's down, our employment growth is up, our tax uh, base is growing uh, at, a, at a good rate that's allowed us to actually expand our services to citizens in a number of areas uh, while keeping the tax rate the lowest among all the major North Carolina cities. Uh, I think we've also undertaken a number of social issues, as you, I think you've reported on earlier. Our our 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness has been extraordinarily uh, successful. Um, in fact, the last numbers I uh, saw were uh, we've reduced that by about 85% now, and we've, we're one of 27 cities initially all across the country that was certified by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development as a city who has actually effectively ended veterans' homelessness. 
and then uh, we've uh, we've started an initiative on poverty that's along the lines of uh, the the homeless initiative. So as I was saying to the to the citizens, uh, the city is in good solid shape uh, financially. Uh, we continue to have triple A, which is the highest credit rating from all three of the major credit rating agencies in the country, which is a testament to our financial fiduciary uh, uh, responsibilities that we've lived up to. And so all told, I think we've got a, a good, strong city, uh, financially well-run, and uh, one that's uh, hopefully sensitive to the, to the public. Um, since you mentioned um, you know, the, the poverty initiative, yeah. let, let, let's talk about that for just All a right, minute. Sure you, thing. You, you, you took that venture on last year. Um, in fact, we talked about that on the public morality. And we sure did. Yeah. Can, you, can you give us an update on where you are right now on that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we created, uh, as you know, a, a group we called the Fault Force, made up of uh, about 18 really good community leaders as well as uh, individuals who uh, have experienced poverty or, and, and maybe still are living in poverty. And we broke it down uh, into five areas that we tried to gather information on, and those would be um, housing, uh, food insecurity, health insecurity, jobs, and education. And we held five uh, what we call world cafes around the city, which gave individuals an opportunity to uh, come up with ideas in each one of those uh, areas. And uh, we probably generated uh, upwards of 400 or so ideas. Uh, we took those ideas and uh, boiled them down. Some of them were similar, so we were able to consolidate them and boil them down to a little over uh, uh, probably 150 of those. And then we posed two questions to each one of them. One, uh, is this idea doable? And secondly, if we do it, would it have an impact uh, on poverty? And so based on that, we have now uh, boiled down the plan to, I think it's about 56 objectives uh, in each one of the uh, total with about um, 10 to 14 objectives under each one of those five areas. We we took those ideas back out to the community with a with a fixed world cafe and was particularly um, uh, invited and brought in individuals who are in poverty or have uh, experienced poverty to get their reaction. And frankly, we heard some some you know, things that said, you know, hey, this is not a good idea. This isn't going to help. Uh, mm-hmm. So we modified some of those. And I think we're down now to the final uh, set of recommendations, which is being uh, fine-tuned, that we will be coming out um, tentatively uh, the second week of February. We'll be uh, probably doing a press conference and briefing the city council on those. Now, one of the things I um, actually um, uh, participated in in the World Cafe. Oh yes, yes, sir. And and one of the things that that, that I was struck by that I appreciate is that too often, um, and I don't mean this as a, as a pejorative by any sense, mm-hmm. but, but we we get we get intellectuals in a room mm-hmm. to come up with an answer, and it was a mix of people who have thought about poverty in, in public policy ways, but at the same time as people who knows what it tastes like intimately. And I thought you mm-hmm. did a real good job uh, of, of in- integrating those two, because somewhere between all those thoughts is is an answer of some kind. Exactly. Uh no one knows better what uh, what it what what's living in poverty like than someone who's there, and so uh, on the other hand, I think you, you need thinking on a on a uh, ten thousand foot level as well. So combining the two, hopefully, we've come up with some practical um, ideas as well as ones that will maybe have some more long reaching uh, impact as well. Um, this is I think I asked you this question the last time you were on, but I think it bears repeating for our listeners um, today. Uh, can your efforts be uh, on poverty be achieved in isolation? In other words, can Winston-Salem achieve its poverty goals without having a state or federal partner? I think not totally. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things we can do locally, but uh, there are so many uh, implications, particularly at the federal level uh, for programs. Uh, for instance, um, uh, we may try to have to seek some um, you know, special dispensations, uh, Sometimes we have individuals who are particularly living in public housing, and we, we help help them get 
you know, a better job and their income gets up a little bit and then all of a sudden they lose their, their housing benefits or they lose some of their food uh, benefits. So it's almost a disincentive to, to move up there. So I, I think it will, will be much more effective if we can um, have some cooperation by the particularly federal uh, government. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Winston-Salem Mayor Alan Joins, who will be a quarterly feature on the public rally. This is our inaugural broadcast with him. Um, talk uh, to me, if you will, about the impact that poverty has on a city. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, poverty uh, has uh, some financial impacts. You know, you, you have individuals who will be... Uh, uh, you know, for instance, going to uh, the hospital for medical care uh, to, to the emergency room rather than you know, seeing a, a doctor. Uh, and, and the fact that individuals probably can't see a doctor on a regular basis, uh, that, that exacerbates their medical conditions in some ways. So, you know, all of us end up paying for that in terms of higher uh, fees at the hospital and perhaps higher uh, insurance fees. And then you also see... Um, uh, children or students who perhaps don't do as well in school because of they aren't getting uh, proper nutrition, uh, proper nourishing, and uh, uh, maybe they, their parents are working two or three jobs to try to make ends meet, and they're not at home at night to give the students the you know, proper direction for homework and that sort of thing. Uh, so you know, poverty impacts you in a number of ways. Um, you, you will impact your crime rates to a certain extent as, as individuals who uh, feel like they may have to uh, enter into um, not legal uh, endeavors in order to, to make money, to get money for their family. So you, you see some impacts of that. So it's pretty broad-ranging impact on a community that you really don't, don't know. And, I, I'm not asking this next question in, in, a, in a political context, mm-hmm. but um, has uh, the city um, given any thought to the potential impact if uh, President Trump uh, makes good on his vow to repeal the Affordable Care Act? I'm not sure we thought about it a whole lot. Um, uh, it doesn't impact the city government, per se, you know, the city with a big uh, C, Um because the, the medical centers and, and health care and things like that are more of a county function. But I do think it will impact our community and, and our city with a little C, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just um, uh, it be very unfortunate to have millions of individuals you know, lose their health care. And I've seen stories uh, written in the paper of individuals who have uh, pre-existing conditions who are getting very expensive treatment for uh, illnesses or afflictions, and they are just very worried about what that might do to them. So uh, I think it would definitely have an impact on us, and not, a, not in a good way. Um, if, if you would, uh, explain to our listeners um, the unforeseen pressures on a city that are created as the result of uh, unfunded, man- unfunded mandates. Yeah, that's uh, one of our favorites or uh, unfavorite uh, things. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best example of that is uh, what we call our our rainwater fee. Um, you know, the federal government mandated that cities undertake massive stormwater studies of the various drainage basins and take uh, actions to uh, protect those stormwaters without giving us any money. And so the only way we could do it was we put in place what's called, the real official name is the impervious surface fee, <laughs> that if you own uh, a lot, you know, we figure out how much on that lot is, is impervious, which means the water can't soak in, it'll run off. Um, and we, we charge homeowners and businesses a fee uh, every month, or every two months, excuse me, with their water bills that allows us to pay for all of those requirements that the federal government put on us. Uh, so there are a number of times that those things happen to us, and uh, you know the city's sort of at the bottom of the barrel in terms of passing cost along. We have no one to pass those along to other than uh, the citizens who uh, uh, who are out there in our city. And, and I would imagine, oftentimes, um, many people who complain—I'm not uh, speaking ill of anyone—but any complain is probably unaware of the legislation that was passed, sent to the state, passed on to the local government, and how that 
sort of flows. They're probably unaware of, of that phenomenon. They just know that they're paying higher taxes in some way. Uh, exactly. And when they get their bill, it doesn't say on there, this this fee is brought to you by the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> it just says City of Winston-Salem pay it. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, we do get uh, blamed for some of those things that are not uh, not our responsibility. I mean, not our, our uh, uh, wasn't caused by us, I should say. Well, Mr. Mayor, if I, if I may suggest, you may want to change your stationery and just say <laughs> That's not a bad thought. <laughs> um, and, and let me just ask you, as, 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 uh, as mayor, what, what are some of the challenges that, that, that uh, might keep you up at night? Well, uh, certainly we, we've made good progress in, in rebuilding our economy. But on the other hand, we know that uh, a local economy is a pretty fragile organism. And so um, I, I worry sometimes about you know, some of our larger employers leaving or getting into a situation where they have to make major downsizings and the impact on the economy. Um, you know, I do worry about our poverty uh, situation and know that we've got to do something about it, but also know that it's a very complex and difficult um, uh, subject that is going to take a, a lot of hard work and a lot of creative work there. And then, frankly, I worry about the interactions uh, of our police with uh, the community. And fortunately, we do have a very strong community-building approach that our police department and Chief Roundtree has taken. But knowing the volatility of situations out there that can happen, uh, we, we did have one young man who died during an apprehension. Turned out he had a heart attack. But... Um, you know, for a while there, it was very tense because we did, uh, you know, pepper spray him during the the arrest uh, of him. But and just look around the country, and just even here in our state, and see the the, the situations because our police men and women are out there every day protecting us, and they have to make instantaneous decisions sometimes. So that's that's a concern, and that's one reason I work hard to make sure we've got a good relationship with organizations such as the. Um, minister's conference here so that when things like that happen, we can um, jointly try to keep things calm until we really understand what happened. Mm -hmm. Finally, before we let you go, um, one of the things that struck me since I've moved here uh, to Winston-Salem is that the, the size of the city geographically and, and, and population does whatever challenges you have you have a size where some of this stuff can be addressed. There's a, as a manageability, how do you see that, sir? No, I, I would agree. And uh, frankly, I've been encouraged to run for other offices from time to time. And I think it's one of the reasons I haven't is that working in a city, you can have an impact and you can solve issues and, and problems and such as our, our homeless situation here because we are – somewhat of a manageable size, uh, you know, 241,000 people in a metro area of 1.6, uh, you can you can really come up with programs that are, that are pretty effective. And the other thing is you can measure them pretty quickly, too. You know, are they working or are they not working? Mayor Allen Jones, uh, thank you, sir, for being on the Public Morality. I look forward to our next quarterly conversation, sir. Thank you, Byron. Hope you have a, a good day and uh, good to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm, that was Winston-Salem Mayor Alan Joins. Stay tuned as we speak with writer Scott Woods about racism. Welcome back. Racism remains America's taboo subject. Oftentimes, the term is thrown into the public discourse with the panache and grace usually reserved for hurling a Molotov cocktail. I recently ran across a quote offered by writer and poet Scott Woods that offered a powerful distillation of racism and one that I believe can be used as a starting point for future sensitive discussions. It read in part, quote, Racism is not a cold that you can get over. There is no anti-racist certification class. It's a set of socioeconomic traps and cultural values that are fired up every time we interact with the world. It is a thing you have to keep scooping out of the boat of life to keep from drowning in it. I know it's hard, but it's the price you pay for owning everything. I'm so pleased to have Scott Woods joining me today on The Public Morality. Scott Woods, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much, Byron. It's an honor. 
You used 158 words to write one of the most searing and comprehensive analysis on racism. And I'd like to begin uh, this conversation by reading those words, if I may. Of course. Quote, the problem is that white people see racism as conscious hate when racism is bigger than that. Racism is a complex system of social and political levers and pulleys set up generations ago to continue working on behalf of whites at other people's expense, whether whites know, like it, or not. Racism is an insidious cultural disease. It is so insidious that it doesn't care if you are a white person who likes black people. It's still going to find a way to infect how you deal with people who don't look like you. Yes, racism looks like hate, but hate is just one manifestation. Privilege is another, access is another, ignorance is another, apathy is another, and so on. So while I agree with people who say no one is born racist, it remains a powerful system that we're immediately born into. It's like being born into air. You take it in as soon as you breathe. Now, now that's a lot to, to unpack, so I'm just going to give it to you to unpack what you just said. <laughs> See how the show works? You know, I, I sit you up and you do the heavy lifting. Not a problem. So, um, you, well, naturally, I've, you know, had a lot of conversations about that since that's come out. It's been a couple years since I wrote that. And, um, you know, the, the overwhelming thing to take away from that is that it's a system. Um, that it's not this thing that you just kind of whack a mole and you find a racist and you and you knock the racist down. It's a thing that kind of swims around all of us all the time. So when people talk about, you know, divesting themselves of racism, about removing racism, about defeating and eradicating racism, you know, that's it's a lot like saying I'm going to eradicate an ocean or I'm going to eradicate land or space. It's just something that kind of comes natural with the human condition. It's, it looks a certain way now, but it's, it's actually something that's probably always been there since there have been two people. Hmm. So, it's, you know, to me, it's not the kind of thing that you get rid of. It's not a cold. You know, it's not a flu. Um, it is something that you can address. It is something that you can remove out of certain practices and ideas and values, which is really what it's all about is values. Um, at least now. It used to look different, but now it's mostly about values. But it's always something that's going to kind of be there. And so you have to treat it as something that you always have to be vigilant about. It's not something that, that goes away because you're a good person. So when you state that racism is a complex set of social and political levers and pulleys, can you give us some examples of what some of those systems look like? Sure. Uh, school to prison pipeline, um, the electoral college, uh, the <laughs> those, those are my two fallbacks, really, at, you know, at the current system. Mm. Um, you know, the educational system, you know, um, I, I mean, it's, it's really almost something you can't escape. It, it's literally infecting everything. It infects all of the media. It infects fashion. It affects politics. Um, and it does it, you know, sometimes in extremely blatant ways. These days it does so very blatantly. Um, but for a while it was pretty subtle. For maybe a good generation or two, you know, 30, 40 years, it was fairly subtle. You know, they had to kind of mask it a little bit. The si people who benefited from that system had to mask it a little bit to get the system to continue to operate the way they wanted it to operate. But now... You know, within the last, I'd say, few years, you know, all pretense has pretty much gone out the window. When I read your piece, though, one of the things that struck, struck me, and um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I took it as saying that it's beyond, the racism as you defined it is beyond intentionality. It doesn't matter if I'm intentionally trying to do something or be a certain way, that what you're articulating is beyond that. Absolutely. Uh, I think that most people... Would tell you, uh, very few people, I think, in the in the scheme of things, would admit to being a racist. Um, even people in the Klan would 
you know, a lot of them would suggest that they're not racist, that they are something else, that they are a Christian or that they are good people or that they are upstanding American citizens. You know, and, and what they do is a byproduct of that value as opposed to anything that's inherently racist. You know, racism is, you know, when I say racism is insidious, um, you know, that really, I, I, I mean, that to me, the way that it operates defines that word almost in every way. Like every time you think you've got a grasp on the level at which it's operating, you find, you discover that it's probably operating at a, a couple levels you know, on top of that one, there's so many angles to it at all times. And so to me, you're almost always really just ever trying to take care of your corner of where it's happening. Um, you're, you're almost never affecting a sea change against racism. Unfortunately, I hate, you know, I hate to be that bleak, but, you know, that's how ingrained the system is. It's not something that we've tacked onto America it is something that America, it is a tool that America has used to create itself. And so to suggest that we can extract racism out of the American experiment is, it, to me, is, is almost dangerous. How, when you say dangerous, what, 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 say more about yeah, that. Sure, because I think that it, it sets us up for goals that we either may not achieve or for goals that once we achieve them, we think we have won the battle. I'll give you an example, civil rights. So currently, uh, we are embroiled as a society, um, people of color, minorities in general, are embroiled, once again, in almost physical wars against racism that look very similar to the same wars that we fought in the 50s and the 60s. And the reason why um, that looks that way is because, in part, because when you tack civil rights onto it and you say this is the civil rights era and this is the thing that we are attempting to get, and you get that thing and you set that goal and you say this is the goal, Civil Rights Act, and you achieve those things, desegregation so on, you, you do a disservice to how racism operates, how it's defined, how at least how it should be. You do a disservice to its power. You don't give it its due credit. And so here we are again fighting those same battles because we didn't defeat racism, right? We just defeated certain mechanisms of it, which is, and don't get me wrong, that was something we should have done. Right. We absolutely needed the Civil Rights Act. At the same time, um, you know, there are certain things that we probably should have done after that as a society, black people as a people. Um, after that, we should have developed, we should have built certain things um, to continue to address the fallout that would come from that. that. I just don't think we anticipated that it would be the way that it is. Well, do you see the election of uh, President Obama as part of that continuum you just articulated with the civil rights movement? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, that's undeniable. Um, I think ultimately, now I say that understanding that the first time that he was elected, I don't think anybody actually thought that was going to happen, right? Much like a lot of us didn't think Trump would ever happen. We also, eight years ago, didn't think Obama would happen. Um, at the same time, while, while we didn't necessarily think that it would happen, there was a point, you know, for much of his campaign, uh, that we thought, okay, well, you know, it's not going to happen. And then at some point, obviously, it did. But prior to it becoming a short thing, at least in terms of it coming down to, you know, President Obama or, you know, then Obama and then uh, McCain, prior to that, um, it was a question of could a black person become president, yes or no? And that answer had firmly been no. You know, for all the way up until 2008. Well, we just we had just gotten over can a black person be quarterback. We had just gotten over that hurdle. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then it's you know, and then look, it's we're still fighting those same battles. Those battles haven't changed because I got a black president. You know. Now, I've always been of the belief that, uh, which is one of the reasons um, I, I really liked your words so much. 
is that charges of racism usually come without the burden of defining what one is talking about. Right. So, so if I say you're racist, if I make that charge, then invariably someone will say, well, are you saying I'm Bull Connor or am I, am I George Wallace? You know, that, that sort of thing. So, um, and it invariably becomes a meaningless discussion. And just in your experience, how, how do you see that phenomenon? And how, how has it played out in, in, in your experience? Well, you know, for myself, I tend to fall back on the tactic of, you know, my man Jay Smoove. Um, you know, he has a viral video where he talks about pulling out. Now, now some act- of us are some of us are older, so you're going to have to for some of our listeners, you're going to say, <laughs> "Who is Jay Smooth?" Everybody's going to be looking that up. So just just give us, you know, who's Jay Smooth? What does he do? You know. Sure, you've probably already seen him and you didn't realize that's what his name was. But Jay Smooth is, um, among other things, he's a DJ out of New York who's done over the course of the you know last handful of years. He's done a series of videos where he just talks to the camera and he just lays out some issue for about three to five minutes. Okay. And he has one very good video. It's probably his. I mean, he could tell you for sure, but it's probably his most famous video where he describes. Um, the problem with calling a person racist as opposed to describing something that they did as being a racist act. If you if your goal is to engage someone that you believe is a racist, you probably aren't going to get very far by starting a conversation saying, I think you're a racist. What's more productive is to point to something that they did and say, you know, this thing you did here is racist. And so we pull the act and the actions out of the person. We, we, we stop personalizing the racism. Because you know, from experience, we know, almost everybody knows, the minute that you say that to somebody, they shut down. You can't talk to them anymore, not productively. And so it becomes about them trying to prove that they're not, when really we should just deconstruct this act that you did, this thing that you did. Because personally, I don't care if you're, if you're racist. Like, I only care if you have the power to put that on me, to enact that racism on me. If you want to go home and be racist in the privacy of your home, I don't care. I only care if you want to make it a law. I only care if you want to bring it into my house. So, Well, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with author and poet Scott Woods. Um, under, looking at your last answer, uh, under your definition, uh, can African Americans or other groups that that identify in a marginalized, uh, historical marginalized way, could they be racist? No. And I know that hurts some people to hear, but that's the truth. Well, as as a, as say I more about it. that, please. Because sure. That... So it it all comes back to the definition. The definition of racism is that we're dealing with a, a power structure. I know people hate to hear that. They say, "Well, it's about power." Well, it is. Um, you know, we have other words now for those other things. Like prejudice? Somebody, you know, pre- exactly. Prejudice, discrimination, black supremacy. You know, these things, we have words for these other things. Racism is something else. At least it should be. We've been operating with a 100-plus-year-old definition of racism that just that basically just says racism is when one person dislikes somebody else for the color of their skin. Well, that's almost useless politically. You know, that's useless in any concrete and productive way. Um, And we have better words for that now. We can just call that prejudice. We can just call that white supremacy, black supremacy, whatever. Uh, But we need something that describes the way that racism operates. We don't need something that just says how you feel about racism. And so we need to be looking at it as a, as a structure, as a system. We need to see how it navigates society. It doesn't navigate society through people's feelings. It uses people's feelings as fuel, but it does not operate that way. It is not always pushing emotional buttons. It is pushing different buttons now. So, um, the, you know, the, the definition of racism should be informing every conversation. If we don't agree on the definition up front, that should tell me how long that conversation is going to be. And, our, our, and uh, I hear you saying that we're, I'm talking about collective, of the collective we, we're guilty of commingling 
the definitions of race, uh, say racism and prejudice together to, to mean the same thing. Sure. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. <laughs> you know, that's mad unfortunate because we're not fixing the problem by trying to make people feel better while staying racist. You know, we're not fixing the problem of the school-to-prison pipeline by saying, well, my friend is black, my friend is white. That's not, we're not fixing that problem that way. And if, but if we don't define racism as very specifically as playing a part in, like, the school-to-prison pipeline, let's say, then then we're not really addressing racism or that issue, you know. So it's it's unfortunate that we're doing that. I mean, I understand that it's it's something that people largely, I think, um, everybody everybody encounters racism, so everybody feels like an expert on racism, and that's something that's that's hard to counter, you know, for people who who are interested in getting people on the same page with it. It's hard. A lot has been discussed uh, about white privilege, and you, you touched on it earlier. Um, but I would also uh, add that too often white privilege is discussed as if it is the only privilege that exists. Now, how do you, how do you see that dilemma? Well, I think I, I'm inclined to agree. I think there's all kinds of privileges. Um, you know, I think white privilege, again, is an output of a racist system. It kicks out privilege. That's kind of how it rewards people. But it's certainly not the only privilege that exists. Um, you know, male privilege is probably the next on the li- on the ladder, if it's not the top of the ladder, to be honest. Um, and and it's you know, privilege is privilege is a funny thing um, because that's almost a tougher sell than redefining racism. I can convince more people uh, to redefine racism than I can that male privilege is an actual thing. It's it's mostly, I mean, I, I think that they understand that it exists. They don't understand why it shouldn't. <laughs> you know, they, they don't have any problem acknowledging that they have the privilege, men, let's say, in general. They just feel that that's how things should be. So it's kind of like arguing religions. Oh. <laughs> wow, Okay. Uh, where does where does uh, poverty play in this in your in this critique on racism? Oh, <laughs> poverty! Poverty is the is the linchpin, really, um, because when we talk about racism as a power structure, and we look at the ways in which we try to define what that structure looks like. Poverty is at the center of that. Money, class, all of that. When we say power, we're talking about, you know, how, well, how is power realized? Well, in this day and age, it's realized through money. And um, that's what almost everybody is fighting about at the end of the day. Uh, we call it other things. We call it power, but it's really money. And we call it class, but it means money. And so poverty um, has everything to do with it. It's, it it kind of reminds me of the fact that, you know, like when Bernie Sanders was running for president, and a lot of people who were supporters of Bernie Sanders would say, well, you know, there was a period of time where black people at large were, you know, in mass were criticizing Sanders um, for not addressing black platforms. And his supporters would say, well, he's the candidate that most uh, supports black issues. But really, if we just solve the money problems, that will address and aid the black issues. Which, of course, is not true, right? It's not categorically true. It will help in some quarters, but it's not really the answer. It's to not, the a, pan- it's not a panacea. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely not. So, so yeah, um, I mean, at at the bottom, at the bottom, well, I shouldn't say at the bottom, but I should say as part of the machine, like a significant part of the machine, the way that it operates, the way that racism manifests in our society, has everything to do with poverty. You, 
you don't have you don't have the prison to pipeline issue without poverty. You don't have um, you don't have all kinds of things without poverty as the linchpin for making that stuff happen, for keeping people in a certain place, in a certain way, doing certain things. Poverty does that. Poverty demands, uh, it, it commands behavior, you know, and so there's only certain things you're going to know, certain things you're going to see. It's hard, for example, it is hard to get someone to value something they cannot experience. If you go into the hood and you try to convince people that they should eat right, it is very difficult to do that if they can't find a grocery store, if they can't find a vegetable for five miles and no one owns a car. You know, it's very hard to do that. Poverty is, is it's, it's, it may be the most powerful arm of racism there is. You, you, you several times in our discussion, uh, talking with Scott Woods uh, about racism, uh, several times in our discussion, you've mentioned the uh, uh, school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. Say more about what that is, and sort of, and if you would make that sort of tie that in with your last answer, what has to do with poverty? Um, sure. So, you know, probably the best proponent to speak on this is Angela Davis. Like, she's the go-to person on school-to-prison pipeline, prisons in general, especially as they affect people of color. But um, generally when I'm referring to that and talking to that and pulling that into a conversation, I'm, I'm referring to that because it's the most, to me, blatant example of the fallout of slavery, of Jim Crow, of the failed hopes and dreams of the civil rights era, of Reaganomics, you know, and of everything that you want to tie to racism currently. All of that is best crystallized when we look at schools and how good schools um, are set up to produce certain kinds of people, and poor schools, by and large, most schools, are set up to bruise other kinds of people by design, like literally by design. And so there's no, it's not a coincidence that poor people end up in bad schools and people who are in bad schools or around bad schools end up in prison or have some association with prison. And so it's just this straight line from your front door to the front of a prison where school is in the middle and where we throw people into school and we say schools should fix this. Schools should be able to navigate poverty. It should be able to navigate um, all of the issues that people have to deal with when they're at home or in the streets. And the problem, of course, is that the schools cannot do that. And so the schools either set up or train or produce people who unfortunately are just are almost predestined to some ratio to end up dealing with prison and those invariably impoverished low-income schools absolutely absolutely when uh when 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 somebody who goes to a really good school ends up in prison that's a mistake when somebody or an aberration when somebody from a poor neighborhood and a bad school ends up in prison that's destiny Where does, oh, no, not where does, I'm sorry. Um, you, maybe you can help me out with this because I'm a little dull. I'm not, the, <laughs> I'm not that bright, so uh, you can help me out. What is a post-racial society? What does that look I have, like? I have no idea. I know I've never seen it. <clears throat> well, we, we, we heard, didn't, didn't we hear when that uh, – with the election of President Obama, that we were entering into a post-racial phase. What? How did you take that? At least let's let's start with that then. Since I laughed heartily for many hours, um, you know, to hear people on my television set talking about that is to me, you know, in the same breath that I mean, we're talking about the media, which is largely where this comes from. So, right there, we have a problem, right? So, I I don't I don't know what they're talking about. 
you know, <laughs> I think I think they're making if they're if they are earnest, if they actually believe what they're saying, which I am not inclined to believe. But if I give them the benefit of the doubt and I take them at their word that they believe at that time, because I'm pretty sure they don't believe it now, which is interesting, but that they believe in a post-racial society, that we had entered it, that we are now existing in it, whatever. Um, if I take them at their word, that suggests to me that you don't know what a society is. That suggests to me that regardless of the fact that you have been sitting at a desk giving people across the country news for however long you've been doing that, that you are not actually paying attention to any of it. So, yeah, that's, that's a, that was a joke when they said it. Now, um, and, and I certainly um, don't mean uh, to be flipped by my next question, um, but just taking some of the um, observations that you've made um, in our conversation, is a post-racial society in our best interest? That's a great question. Assuming, something, assuming it could be achieved in some uh, form. I don't think so. If I'm, uh, if I'm honest, uh, I mean, because what are we really talking about when we say post-racial society? Are we talking about a society that is capable of embracing cultures, cultural differences, and political differences? Nah. Certainly, pluralism would certainly be a part of it. Religious, social pluralism mm-hmm. in an authentic way would certainly be part of that, wouldn't it? It would have to be. And so, I mean, I mean, especially when you talk about black folks, you have to include religion. So, <laughs> so absolutely, that would have to be part of it. But yeah, are we talking about that? Or, and this is what I think they really mean, because none of them really bothered to answer the question thoroughly. Do you mean a society in which the color of one's skin is not recognized at all? And I think the first one is probably at this stage in the game unachievable in American society. And the second one is unachievable, period. Like, it's not possible, nor would it be productive if it were. Because, you know, obviously to do that would be to discount so many other things about me that I value. So, no, I don't know that that's the goal. I think post-racial is the wrong goal. You know, I think... Something else is probably better. But, if I mean, once you get that in your head, you know, post-racial as a goal, I, I mean, I have to question what you mean. We need to figure out what you mean, and then I can tell you all the problems that you're going to have with it because you're going to have nothing but problems either way, I think. Scott Woods, author, poet, thank you for being on The Public Morality Today, sir. Byron, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. That was Scott Woods. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. One of the underreported aspects of the American experiment has been, unlike other revolutionary efforts, the battle for revolution in America did not precede governing. States had already began drafting constitutions before shots were fired at Lexington. Each time a new administration takes office, it reflects a mini-revolution, whether to stay the present course or go in a different direction. 2016 election results indicate that America is uncomfortably primed to head in a different direction. This is why President Trump's decision to counter the fact that more people attended President Obama's inaugural in 2009 than his in 2017 is cause for concern. On its surface, it is indeed much ado about nothing. Moreover, if this were in isolation, the president's actions, though imprudent, would not warrant further discussion. But below the surface, it demonstrates an unwillingness to move beyond the revolution and assume the role of governing. The president used a portion of his remarks at his inaugural address to suggest that the rollicking campaign style that he brought Uh, to victory in 2016 might continue in terms of his governing style. The next day, he sent out Press Secretary Sean Spicer to excoriate the press 
for their reporting of the attendance between Trump's inauguration and that of President Obama eight years ago. When asked about this decision to criticize the media for reporting what turned out to be an accurate story, but otherwise an innocuous one on Meet the Press, White House advisor Kellyanne Conway suggested that Spicer was using, quote, alternative facts, unquote, to make his point. Then in his first meeting with congressional leaders from both parties, the president the following Monday reportedly proclaimed the only reason Hillary Clinton enjoyed a three million vote advantage is due to what he alleged were five million people who voted illegally. If the first days are an accurate indicator, it's going to be challenging to be a citizen during the Trump administration. If facts, which is defined as something that is indisputably the case, can be countered with, quote, alternative facts, does that mean one's decision on what is true will vary on based largely on how they feel about the president or how they feel about the press? Either the president doesn't understand the difference between the revolution and governing, or he stands to be perhaps the most Machiavellian president we've ever experienced. If, in fact, he is the latter, he is aided by a disheartening set of recent poll numbers. According to PPP polling, taken just before the inauguration, 67% of Trump voters believed unemployment went up, not down, during the Obama years. Moreover, 39% of Trump voters told PPP researchers that the stock market went down in that same eight-year period, not up. How can this be? If we can have our own set of facts... While alternative facts is accepted as a legitimate currency in the public discourse, whatever this may be, it is certainly not a path that leads to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located on our website, which is publicmorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be located on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>